Hello and welcome to another episode of May the Horse Be With You podcast. In this episode, Summer's going to sit down with Dr. Sam Crosby for their fourth Facebook Live, tackling the tough topic of EPM and similar diseases that can mirror symptoms. This audio is going to be taken straight from their Facebook Live, which you can also find the replay video on the Superior Therapy LLC Facebook page. Enjoy. Hey everybody, um, we are working on getting our live video up. If you can hear us, uh, mm-hmm. we're having trouble getting the feed going. So if you can hear us, comment that way we know that you're here. Uh, we're seeming to have a little trouble getting our audio and our video to sync up. I think it's okay. I think there's just a delay. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Okay. So we are getting comments that everybody can hear us, um, which is awesome because we're getting about a 20 second delay here. Um, So we're just going to ignore that and kind of roll on with it. Um, Anyway, so my name is Summer Terry and I'm the owner of Superior Therapy LLC. And with me this evening, I've got Dr. Sam Crosby, and we are going to go over some EPM questions, and um, I've, I've posted the podcast that we've done in the past. Oh, there we go. Maybe we're back on. Um, I've posted some of the podcasts that we've done in the past, as well as some of our other live videos that we've done. So... Um, just kind of go ahead and submit your questions. I've got a list of questions that were put on the um, the event page that we did, and we're going to maybe start with some of those, but I'm going to let Sam introduce himself. Hey, Dr. Sam Crosby. I have a private practice here in uh, Arcadia, Oklahoma, just outside of Edmond, and uh, basically specialize in performance horse medicine. Um, I couldn't pronounce myself as an expert in much of anything, but we treat a lot of EPM and we try to be on the cutting edge. Um, I'm hopeful that I can uh, help some of y'all answer some questions. Perfect. Um, Do you want to kind of just maybe go over an overview? I know that we've talked about that in, in other videos, like maybe just go over our different types of EPM and some of the symptoms that you see like real briefly, because I know we're going to get a lot of questions on that. Well, EPM is basically one of the biggest things, biggest problems we face in uh, today's horse deal, uh, especially in the middle part of the United States. Uh, We've got uh, a muscular form of EPM. We've got a neurologic form of EPM. Um, we'll start back. Everybody's very familiar with the neurologic form. I lost cover here. And uh, 
the neurologic form has been causing trouble for many, many years. I mean, when I was a child and I followed my father around, he was a veterinarian, we'd find uh, neurologic horses, <clears throat> and we always pronounced them as wobblers back then. Then in about 1990, they came up and, and uh, said they had, they found the pathologic agent causes EPM, uh, which is Sarcosystis neurona. They also have uh, Neospora husei. Uh, these are protozoan organisms that infest the animals in the spinal cord, generally speaking, sometimes in the nervous tissue of the brain. Uh, they cause definite neurologic deficits in these horses, uh, which basically can be really insidious and sneak up on you. Um, now, we were treating these at a pretty regular rate up until... We got to uh, the big drought we had a few years back, about seven years ago. And then we started noticing that we were having a lot of EPM-like cases. Uh, and they were pronounced as EPM, but they weren't exactly neurologic. So we started asking questions. And what we came up with, we ended up doing a study with UC Davis and Dr. Madigan and Dr. Aleman. Uh, and we did this through my clinic up here as just part of their study. And what we determined is we are facing another bug out there called Sarcosystis feyeri, which is a muscular form. It's the same protozoan type organisms. However, they infest the muscular structure of the horse. And they'll give a similar symptom, but they are not neurologic. Uh, luckily, most of the same medications treat both conditions. So, what we've been seeing a lot of is we've been seeing that we're uh, we're finding more and more of the muscular variety up to a point now where I think probably 85% of the EPM cases that are being treated is called EPM or actually the muscular form of the sarcosystis feyeri. And uh, luckily that form is a lot easier to treat than the neurologic form. I think uh, most of you realize that the neurologic form, you almost have to treat it two to three months to get it beat out properly. Whereas the muscular form, a lot of times we can treat it for one month and we usually have it under control. But we're always aware that we may see, see it again because recurrences are pretty high. Um, okay, do you want to jump right into some questions? Sure, go ahead. Um, so there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of questions in here on rehab that I think that maybe we can kind of go over in a bulk discussion of what we do with um, rehab stuff. Um, since I have a five-year-old stud that has been, had something wrong with him for over a year now, we've treated with five different EPM treatments and nothing. The vets just keep telling us the same story over and over. Uh, what are some other options that we have? And they're, um, they actually just put the pictures on there as well. So the five-year-old stud that they did. What, what's what's his sign? Um, looks like to be a lot of muscle wasting, law, uh, loss, that type of thing. But I, I guess a better question is, what do you do when your treatments are not working when they still present as EPM symptoms? Okay. Well, that's been a huge problem uh, in the last few years. Uh, we're seeing some neurological cases course uh, resistant to treatment 
Um, basically, what I recommend in those cases is we start with a uh, good history on them. What have you treated with? What have you done? Okay, then you've got to go to blood work. You need to do your blood work, CBC the chemistry, and find out if you've got any blood work that's showing uh, abnormalities at all. I usually work, look for a reduced platelet count in these instances because a lot of times the immune system suppressed when they have any form of a protozoan. Uh, and that immune system being suppressed also allows concurrent infections to take place. These concurrent infections, generally speaking, can be tick-borne. Uh, you're looking at Lyme's, uh, tularemia. Uh, I found some of some of all of them. Luckily, most of them are susceptible to doxycycline. Now, if you're having muscle wasting and your treatment's not working, okay, then definitely you're going to try different on your EPM. I, I don't have a lot of luck with the blood titers on our, our blood testing. Uh, and I find them hard to follow and tell me that I'm still fighting an infection. I generally go with the physical signs and I, I do a lot of acupuncture diagnostics. And I feel like those point me a, a pretty good direction whether I'm still fighting EPM or I'm fighting something else. Some of the tick-borne parasites will actually cause some of the similar symptoms. Uh, so where you're at with this five-year-old stud, basically you've treated with a lot. I don't know which, which treatments you've used, but um, this is a very frustrating situation. And Summer and I were talking about this before this deal started. Uh, there is a lady in Florida that has a pathogens labs. Uh, she does a lot of blood testing and she believes that some of these resistant EPM-like symptoms are caused by a... Uh, polyneuritis, an autoimmune polyneuritis, which is in turn caused by being overtreated with the medications. I'm not sure I can buy that completely, but I'm not, uh, I'm not a complete skeptic either because we're using a lot of medications. Uh, I have not yet found anything that completely will get one of these resistant animals to turn around and go my way. We've been experimenting a lot. We've done a lot of ozone therapy. We've done a lot of prolotherapy. We've used uh, a lot of extra label usage on drugs. We've done a lot of different things trying to figure out some way to get it to work. And there are some horses that are resistant and we just can't beat it. We don't have an answer. Sometimes, as I was telling Summer, I kind of believe that some of these animals have damage in the nervous system that uh, is permanent or it's going to take a long time for it to go away. And we all we could do is we treated the heck out of them and and we reach a point where we just don't have much else we can do. We just keep trying things, but we haven't found that magic bullet yet. So we also have several questions on vitamin E. Is it really as important as people are saying? What What is your recommended dosage of vitamin E? And then we also had another question where they said that there were some possible studies that vitamin E could cause bleeding in horses. And should you worry we're turning a horse that's on high amounts of vitamin E back to performance? Uh, the answer to that is vitamin E is important. Uh, it's important when you're rehabbing a neurologic horse because vitamin E is essential for the neurologic tissue to heal. Now, do I keep them on vitamin E for the rest of their life? No. I'm only big on using the vitamin E as long as I'm trying to recover the horse from the, from the EPM. So, I, I mean, it's great if you're putting it on them 
while you're in treatment and then immediately after while you're trying to rehab them. I don't think it's necessary to keep them on it for long periods of time, no. As far as it causing bleeding, I haven't read that paper. I'm not 100% sure of that. Uh, but I mean, anything in large amounts has side effects, which is something Summer and I were talking about before this deal started. But anything you do, any kind of medication you give is going to have some kind of side effect that maybe you're not looking for. You're, you're only looking for one thing, but there's always something else. Any action has an equal and opposite reaction. Well, and probably the thought process where that comes from is vitamin E thins the blood. Because mm -hmm. I know even on the human side, you have to stop your vitamin E before a surgery. But would thinning the blood lead to being a bleeder or is that something else entirely? No, thinning blood wouldn't lead to being a bleeder. I mean, other than not as a bleeder as you and I are talking about, in, you know, exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. Right. No, I don't think it'd lead to be a bleeder at all. I don't, I disagree with that. Okay. But but I, scientifically, I think that doesn't stand. Uh, somebody could prove me wrong. But as far as I understand, that wouldn't work that way. Right. Um, let's see. Um, going through here. Several questions on joint injections. What causes the joint injections to cause flare-ups? And I know we've kind of visited that in other podcasts, but let's hit on it again a little bit here. Okay, so that in itself is uh, going right back to what we just said. Uh, we are always looking for the beneficial effects of using medication. And when you're using medication in joint spaces, you're using a foreign substance put inside a very small area that's a delicate structure uh you're hoping to end an inflammatory cycle that's going on there and that's a good thing i i'm very pro joint injections um, we are lucky to live in a revolutionary time where you have uh, tremendous amounts of progress in regenerative medicine uh tremendously number of, of new products coming out that are so beneficial and uh, we're getting to see stuff coming up every day now that's new and it's great to use. Some of our, our straight injections that we've always used, though, are still beneficial. However, there's a very, very small percentage of those that you will get a flare-up. Uh, uh, Depomedrol is a commonly used cortisone that is used in joints, and occasionally you'll have a joint that'll flare. 99% of the time, that flare is a short flare and one or two days and then it goes away maybe 0.02 percent of those flares damage the joint enough that it introduces a bacterial infection and, and that infection can in turn damage you so it's an emergency it's a medical emergency you're going to have to get on it right now now some of the regenerative medications of course they're using uh, stem cells and whatnot some of the regenerative medications, I don't care if it's IRAP, PRP, uh, Renovo, you know, any of those can cause a bit of a joint flare. Uh, and they will because you have a tremendously inflamed joint and you put some new stuff in there and then the joint will react to that. And it's usually a short-lived little reaction and then over a day or two, it'll go away. You treat with it uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, ice, cold water, and they'll go away. But that, that one micro percent, turns into a major event and you hate to see those. And, and in fact, you get to working as a veterinarian, you get to working and you're injecting so many, 
that you don't see them for a long time and you get confident because you're doing things. When you're injecting joints, you have to do things a certain way. It's almost a, an OCD type of, of behavior. Mm -hmm. You scrub this joint three times. You you scrub it again. You apply alcohol. You do all of this. You put this much stuff in here. You do it like this. And because of that, you run into a time period where you won't have any. And then all of a sudden, no matter what you did, if you didn't change anything or anything, something happens. Right. Because you just put a, a form substance into a joint. I'm going to actually hand this one to you. If yeah, because I thought you might be able to sum that one up a bit better than... I'm going to read this question out for everybody. <laughs> what is the correlation, if any, to the protozoa that causes EPM and the protozoa that causes pyroplasmosis? Can a horse develop pyroplasmosis after they've been positive for both protozoa that cause EPM? Whoa, I lost my I lost my lead reader there. Oh, there we go. Can a mare, both protozoa causes EPM. Can a mare pass EPM or pyro onto the foal in the is an embryo transfer? Can the surrogate mare pass it to the embryo? Can the donor mare pass it on to the oocyte embryo? Thanks, I have a mare that's been diagnosed with EPM and she is an ICSI foe. Her dam developed pyroplasmosis. Surrogate mare was unknown but seemed healthy at the time. Now, my mare has EPM. Will she develop pyroplasmosis eventually? She is eight, used for competition, very athletic, got weak in her hind end, weird lameness, body sore all over, tested positive for EPM. Blood titers are high. I'm worried about the pyro. She's doing great. What should I watch for? Okay, pyroplasmosis is a parasite of the red blood cells. Uh, it is basically incurable to a point. Okay, in the United States, there are no drugs that are approved to treat pyroplasmosis. In Mexico, however, they do have a drug that they treat with. Okay. Uh, it's closely related to the drug that we treat heartworms in dogs. It's expensive to treat with that drug. And in the U.S., they really don't, they won't, uh, they don't really okay it because it's conjectured that the drug that's treating the pyroplasmosis that the Mexicans are using for that is actually causing the horse to seroconvert to negative and he's still infected but he will test negative. So they're saying that drug is not actually curing the pyroplasmos, but it is causing the animal to seroconvert back to negative, uh, if I understand. Now, the connection between pyroplasmosis and EPM, I don't believe that there is actually a connection between pyroplasmosis and EPM, other than the fact that EPM causes your immune system to drop allow you to catch pyroplasmosis. Uh, pyroplasmosis is also a tick-borne parasite. And now you're causing me to dig way into my memory here, and I may, <laughs> something, I may say something that is not uh, textbook correct, uh, but I'm going to go out on a limb here. Pyroplasmosis is a tick-borne parasite. We thought it was eradicated in the United States, and uh, then what they found was some of the horses from King Ranch were diagnosed. And then by that, they did an etiological study and they went all over the United States looking for horses that had been sold from the King Ranch. And they determined that, yes, we had a lot of pyroplasmosis. Okay. 
So your question is, <clears throat> is pyroplasmosis being related to EPM? No, it's really not. Uh, it is a tick-borne parasite. And to, for your horse to get pyroplasmosis, it has to have gotten an infected infection, meaning they shared needles with an infected horse, or your horse got bitten by an affected tick, which those ticks are generally in Mexico or right on the border. Uh, and so the only pyroplasmosis that we're catching in the United States currently is coming from poor hygienics, meaning a lot of uh, people, uh, we're not going to throw stones here, but there are a lot of people who have stables of horses that do certain things with those horses, who use the same needle on every horse, and they pass blood back and forth, and that's how they pass pyroplasmosis around. So every pyro-positive horse that we're catching in the United States right now either came from Mexico or came from the King Ranch area, or it was a part of a stable that where they were using poor practices, and they passed it with the needles. That was a good one. That was interesting. Yeah, interesting question. She tested me hard. There. <laughs> okay, so here's a non-EPM question. When you're talking about regenerative therapies and like tissue success rate of platelet-rich plasma, which is PRP, um, severe injury at the hawk and down when just a few weeks old. She's now six and ultrasound shows scar tissue connected to the tendons. Is regenerative therapy something you use in this case and would you suggest using PRP? Okay. And this, this horse is six years old now and it, it yes, was injured and, and when it was a baby. Yeah, at a, at a few weeks old. So. And is, is it in the hawk joint? Um, it says Ultrasound shows scar tissue connected to the tendons, so it was injured at the hawk and down. Hmm. So it sounds okay. like maybe the scar tissue is below the okay. joint. So um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to get a grip on that, that question. So basically, you're looking at a six-year-old injury. Uh, PRP, or platelet-rich plasma, um, is trying to use the buffy coat that is left after you centrifuge blood down so it's using the body's own cells in, a, in an effort to, to combat uh, inflammation when you're treating a six-year-old injury platelet-rich plasma probably wouldn't be my first choice uh, you're definitely not going to cause any harm but what you're treating you're treating an injury that's six years old and is completely scarred up already and i don't know that uh, play, PRP is, is going to add anything on there that's going to really ca cause that to heal because you're looking at adhesions, you're looking at a, a, a wound that's healed up. PRP is going to work better in an acute injury okay. where it takes away inflammation and it adds certain cells to that area. So uh, PRP probably wouldn't be my first choice. I would need to know what the injury is, what damage is there. Uh, and then is it something that we could fix maybe surgically? And then I would treat it with PRP after the surgery. But I don't know that I would treat just a six-year-old in injury with PRP just out of the blue trying to get it to heal. I don't know that you're going to do that much. Well, and especially the cost. You know, right. I think that would be one thing you'd have to yeah, factor yeah, in is the definitely. cost of your regenerative therapies yeah. as well. Definitely. I mean, because you want to get the biggest bang for your buck. 
for sure. You know, so if you're going to do regenerative therapies, you're looking at a lot of money with any of them. Right. So I would sure be looking at that. I, I just don't know if that, that's the right choice. But I'm looking at this case from a 13th hand view here, and I don't know if, if that's good enough. I, right. I hope I'm answering your question, but by the same token, I probably need a little bit more history. So, so what things do you see that PRP works effectively for? You, well, you talked about acute injuries. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're talking PRP, IRAP, uh, you know, most of these regenerative therapies, you're looking at an acute injury. Okay. Uh, any kind of old injury gets a little tougher to heal. Now, when we're talking about an old tendon injury with possibly a hole in the tendon, it has and you could put that inside there and maybe add just enough of this, maybe a stem cell or some uh, interleukin type of healing deal where you could probably stimulate that thing to heal. Then you could probably do that. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at an injury that healed up against the bone, like at the origin of a tendon or the insertion of a tendon on the bone, I don't know that you could you could fix that with that. Now, where you're asking me where to use PRP, uh, <clears throat> my goodness, I mean, if you have he tore a lateral collegium, lateral collateral ligament on an ankle or or a foot or something like that. You could put it in there. Uh, same way with IRAP. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that I think people are seeing or people are trying to see with IRAP and and PRP is they're trying to say this is a the last ditch effort. I've tried to fix this with cortisone. I've tried to fix it with high visc or acid, uh -huh. uh, and it didn't work. So I'm going to move up to PRP and IRAP. My experiences with IRAP and PRP are not such that that's going to work. I think if you're going to use PRP and IRAP, you use them in place at the first of it. They're not a fallback. Right. Okay. There's something that you should be treating with from the start. Okay. You're not, you're not moving up like that. Okay. So you're either doing typical injections mm -hmm. with cortisones and acid and whatnot, or you're doing regenerative therapies or deal it's not a let's move up and do something different okay. i mean if you did a uh, cortisone and an acid and it didn't work at all and you did it one time that's fine but if you did a typical injection and you've been on a maintenance deal every three to six months and it's not working and you think i'm going to move up to prp and it's going to heal it that's not really the case okay also another place i'd use prp IRAP is post-surgery uh, right. Where you've done some work and you're needing to add some anti-inflammatories in there and stuff to get this thing to heal better. And, and I use IRAP on the horse that we did cycle surgery on several years ago and had really, really great results right. with it. And you're going to have good results if you use it the proper way. Right. If you're if you're thinking that I've lost, I've used all of my options and, and all my magic beans are gone and I'm going to PRP and it's going to fix it, you're screwed. That's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, that's just... Uh, okay, so I'm going to jump to another non-EPM question. What do you recommend for locking stifles? Okay, locking stifles are a, a huge issue. Uh, I just had a long phone conversation just the other day about this. Uh, I've had several people here in town. Uh, we've done different things, and this is a constant evolution. We're constantly moving around, learning stuff. Uh, I'm by sure, by no means am I an expert on uh, orthopedic issues requiring surgery, okay? But locking stifles, uh, otherwise referred to as uh, medial subluxation of the patellar, uh, me medial desitis of the patellar ligament, 
Okay, so to understand locking stifles, first of all, what you need to know is humans have a patella, a kneecap on each knee. Now, the stifle of a horse is analogous to a human knee Correct. to a point. They have a kneecap on the stifle, but whereas the human has one patellar ligament that goes up and down like this and pulls this bone in an even fashion, which is through this little groove here, okay? And we've got one, okay? But the stifle on a horse, he has three patellar ligaments. He's got a lateral, a middle, and a medial. Medial being inside, lateral being outside. And those have to pull equally to make that patella move down that groove. And everybody is going down that groove. And now if that medial patellar ligament gets laxity, laxity meaning it's getting loose, then that can cause the patella to kick sideways and lock up and actually lodge in that groove and not move. And now your stifles lock. How much laxity in that tendon, in that ligament, determines how it locks. Okay, now, years ago when I graduated, the go-to deal was let's do a desmotomy. So we go in there and we actually take a, a bistry knife. It had a little dull point on it. We make an incision. We go in there and cut that patellar ligament, the medial one. Which in turn left the pressure on these two, alleviating the issue. Well, they did a lot of studies and they figured out that most horses don't return to full capacity of their performance, but they had the four, okay? And they also figured out that if they, as they reached up into their older years, then that they had damage on the patella. Okay, so we quit doing so many of the patellar desmotomies. We didn't do that so much anymore. Mm -hmm. So then what we did is we did blister. Everybody wants to blister and stifle. That's a big deal. Let's blister the stifle. I get that all the time. People call me. They want to blister the stifle. They don't even know what the hell's wrong with the horse, but let's blister the stifles. And I try to explain to them, well, we don't have any laxity in that stifle. I don't really think this one is calling for a blister. However, I think that there are a lot of horses that have kind of a hidden laxity in that medial patellar ligament. I talked to a veterinarian in Florida the other day that claimed to have uh, come up with a pretty good treatment. Now, what he does is what's called tendon splitting. And he takes a similar bistry knife. It's the one I was talking about, but it is a little sharp spear. And he makes incisions and he actually makes little cuts in the patellar ligament and that medial ligament. Okay, and when he does that, it causes that thing to thicken and fibrose up. Now, he doesn't use any blister when he does that. He charges about 600 bucks to do one. He claims he's got enormous success rate. Okay, now what we've been doing in, in most veterinarians around in this area, now other than the referral facilities, they've been splitting some tendons as well. But a lot of the referral veterinarians, non-referral veterinarians like myself, have been doing what's called shredding, where we take a big needle, like a 16 gauge, and we go in and we actually shred that medial patellar ligament, and then we put blister inside it. Uh, it's a little more barbaric. Uh, accomplishes the same thing. Mm -hmm. We get it to thicken tendon. You can actually feel it afterwards. It gets there and then the horse should start traveling right. Uh, I have had one instance I know of lately where my tendon shredding didn't work and I sent it somewhere and they split it and she actually felt like that worked better. And again, getting back to our old friend EPM, 
uh, one of a major sign of EPM infestation in a horse usually starts in the stifle, and we actually see some horses that start locking their stifle, and EPM is one of the first things you need to look for. So when you talk about a locking stifle, what are you looking for, or what would an owner look for um, symptom-wise? <clears throat> How do you know whether or not that's something you need to go and have your vet look at? They go everywhere, and again, just like EPM, you're going to get varying uh, opinions on locking stifles. Okay, so a locking stifle or a stifle issue like that can be anywhere from a sore stifle to a horse that actually locks that stifle, the leg will <clears throat> the leg will catch and you get a jerk. Okay. Or the leg will actually catch and drag behind with the toe dragging a line in the ground. And where you actually you want to back them up. And you actually back them up to release that stifle. Years ago, before I knew anything or treated too much EPM or anything, I actually had one horse that locked the stifle so badly that I had to lay that horse down to free it up. I couldn't back him. I couldn't do anything. And I think I ended up transecting that dinadesmotomy and cut that. That horse couldn't even live that way. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so um, next question. After a horse is treated for EPM but is left with sidewinding syndrome as the aftermath, is it okay to let them live the rest of their life like this? Is it painful or is it uncomfortable for them? Is that term right there, sidewinding syndrome? <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't mean to make light. I mean, that's a terrible thing to have. Uh, it sounds like somebody coined a term. Uh, I may have to remember that. So, uh, so do we assume that that means that the horse doesn't travel forward correctly, that the horse is going to travel that's at exactly an angle? exactly what I was saying. Yeah, okay. the horse is basically, he moves sideways. Okay. That would depend on how many times you treated him. Uh, and what you treat him with, if you treat him with something different, I would have to exhaust all my options before I would settle to that. But if you treated him with a lot of, you're satisfied that you can't fix it, and he's, and he's stuck that way, you have to assume that he has some kind of deficit or left in the spinal cord, or in that case, possibly even the central nervous system, meaning the brain. Okay, damage in the brain or damage in the spinal. I would tend to think if he's moving sideways, there's good possibility that we have some damage in the same nervous system. Uh, and yes, he can be left that way, but the thing you have to worry about, is it painful? No, uh, it's not so much painful. Uh, is it dangerous? Yeah, he could fall and, and hurt himself and he could hurt somebody else. Uh, in a case of an insured horse, the insurance company always calls it as, is the horse a danger to the handler or himself? And in that particular instance, the answer would be yes. You would put him down and, and the insurance company would be that. I'm not saying this horse is insured, but that is the, the rule of thumb. So are you asking me, yes, could you leave him that way? Yes, you could, but you might be prepared to find him get down someday and he couldn't get up and or he might fall on you. Uh, and you'd have to be very careful of that. Well, and I guess that, that leads me to a question that I don't think we've ever actually had to ask. Um, how does that work with the, which I know you're not an insurance salesman, but how does that work with the insurance companies on these horses that have been treated? You know, I, I know like it tends to be, it seems like the insurance companies will treat, will let you turn in EPM one time kind of in a life 
time and they will pay for treatment on that. But does that deem a horse uninsurable or? No, not at all. Okay. Uh, what it does, I mean, <clears throat> if you had EPM and they usually want a blood test or something to test it to prove your point and or a spinal uh, tap. And you prove this point and your horse has EPM and he's been treated. Uh, at that point, generally what the insurance company do will exclude EPM as a cause of death or a cause of loss. Okay, now if your horse has EPM and he caught it and, and you're in the same cycle, like the same year, you're in the same policy, and he caught it and then it, it puts him to that point where he's so neurologic that he has to be put down, they will pay that. Okay. But if he if you treat him and he goes past that time and <clears throat> you have to re-up insurance on him, they'll either not re-up insurance or they'll exclude EPM as a cause uh, for paying you. Okay, well, that's something to know. Um, then that kind of rolls into the next question. When talking about titers, how accurate are titers and is there any value in pulling titers on a regular basis? I do not believe pulling titers on a regular basis helps you in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm a huge skeptic of blood titers. Uh, I'm the same, I'm as skeptical of blood titers and EPM as I am of the COVID numbers they keep throwing at us. I don't know which is more unbelievable, right? So I get horses that I know have EPM by my physical exam and I get blood titers back that are negative. Okay, there's a certain way to read blood titers. Is it coming up? Is it going down? Are we catching this? Are we catching that? If you do multiple titers, maybe you could track it on through there. But I have not found anything that has allowed me to track an infection other than doing a, a good physical exam on this horse and, and, and watching it, right? Well, and, I mean, do you feel like this, there's some vets out there that that's basically what they treat off of is the titer? And how do you know... That, somebody that states away that maybe can't haul a horse to you, how do you know whether or not that's good medicine? I can't I can't get upset at that. That's that's practicing proper medicine. Uh, they're doing it the way that it's supposed to be done. And, and you can't blame them for doing that. I mean, if that's if that's what they do, then that's what they do. And I'm just speaking with my experience and what I do in my practice. Right. Okay. So from you're asking me my belief no i don't think the titers are that accurate and i think they're hard to read uh, uh and i think they're hard to interpret okay and and i don't know that doing a titer is going to really help you i think you're and you know i'm a heretic burn me at the stake here but you would be money ahead to treat your horse every once in a while every three to six months because there are no preventatives available and I have to say this, that the only preventative that, that we know of is every you know, three to six months, you may have to treat with a partial treatment. And so then I'm going to throw in something here, too. Do you find that there are better times of the year to treat? You know, I, I know that we discussed here in Oklahoma, the heat bringing it out. Um, you know, when you start, when you get April and May and we switch from the nice spring weather to it is just flat hot all the time it seems like we see horses with a lot of flare-ups. Absolutely. Uh, winter time is pretty quiescent. You don't see that much. Now you see one here and there, especially, you know, if they're, their horses are being stressed on a regular basis. 
Right. You know, anytime you have a stress event in a horse's life, a colic that he has to go to the clinic, uh, you know, some major surgery or something like that, you might look for it in the recovery phase. Okay. But as far as times of year, spring is huge because that's when all your allergens come out. The horse's immune system is being attacked daily. And that's when you start seeing the uptick. That's when the cases start getting bigger. But then you get into the gush during August at the tip of that heat right there. And when that, that heat's a big deal, that's when they really pop out. Those times right there. I tell a lot of my clients, like, you know, especially on the horses that mostly I tell them on the horses that have given us a history of getting this, uh, we'll do it two to three weeks or a month before there's a big event coming up. Like yes. If I've got an NFR qualified rider that's going to NFR, we might ought to treat him. Just give him a partial treatment or a half treatment or something just to be ahead of this deal. Well, and then that also rolls into um, horses that need routine injections. Do you recommend doing a treatment like a horse that's got a history of the EPM? Do you recommend doing a treatment either directly after or right before having your routine injections done? Yeah. See, I'm not a big believer in routine injections myself. I'm, I'm not one of the guys that you come in and say, I do this horse every six months or something like that. I want to go over that horse, see if he has an issue, and I want to do it. If he's got an issue, I do it. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'm just not a big believer in the, just we're doing to do it just to do it. Uh, now, if I got a problem in a joint and I know that problem is there and, you know, we've got a big event coming up, yes, we may do it. Now, going back to your question, if I do a horse, if I get a horse coming to me and he's not showing me signs of EPM, this stuff is insidious. It can sneak up on you. It sneaks up on me all the time. And I find, uh, you know, hawks or stifles or something like that, and I do an inje several injections on him. Yes, I'll go ahead and, and treat him because I might suspicion that he's going to go ahead and the cortisone will drop it down enough that it'll bring it on. Now, do you, you know, treat a whole 30 days there? Or sometimes you... I will, and sometimes I'll just do a half treatment. Okay. But I'm not a huge believer in this bunch that goes, oh, my God, don't use cortisone because – it's going to cause it. It's not causing it. It's actually dropping the immune system and letting it show up. It was already there. Well, and and I mean, it's almost like which is the lesser of two evils, working a horse that's sore that needs injected because that could cause a flare as well, yeah. or going ahead and doing the injections to get rid of the pain in the horse, which could cause a flare as well. Which flares back into your IRAP PRP deal, where you could do, you know, you could have IRAP frozen and you could use IRAP as your injections, you know, and that works too. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, we've got several questions about vaccinations. Can you vaccinate during treatment? Do you worry about vaccinations affecting horses that are showing EPM signs? Um, there, there's kind of some pros and cons, a lot of controversy on do you inject or, or I mean, do you vaccinate or not? Okay. So I'm not, vaccines are stressful for the immune system. If I'm treating a horse for EPM, I'm not going to vaccinate him right now. Okay. If he's if he's prone to catch EPM, if he's one of those whose immune system has trouble fighting EPM, um, I vaccinate anyway. But I, I keep my eye out just to be sure. If you know, I'm because hopefully I'm already watching for it. Right. But I can't do away with vaccines on my horses anyway, just because of that. So if you had a horse on treatment where if they're on, starting to improve, would you go ahead and vaccinate no, or would you wait? No, I'd wait. I'd wait. wait until I'm done. Okay. Um, question about autoimmune diseases and how they correlate to EPM. 
Okay, that's the polymerase we were talking about earlier. Um, Correct. There's not enough studies done on that that I think we could really communicate uh, logically and knowledgeably about it. Uh, there is a there's a current theory going on that some of the treatments, if we've treated a horse with a lot of treatments, that uh, you develop a polyneuritis or an autoimmune polyneuritis, which is an inflammation of the nervous system. And so the horse isn't now infected with EPM, but he has this polyneuritis whereby his nervous system is inflamed and we can treat him with something to make that inflammation go away. Okay. Maybe this is the case. I don't know how you would prove this. This is very hard to prove. Uh, the lady at pathogens uh, lab in Florida has several tests that she does that to her indicate that the horse has polyneuritis uh, and she treats with levamisol, what she calls Neuroquil. Um, I personally haven't seen that that has been all that successful. Uh, I use albendazole a lot, warmer, to combat uh, neurotoxins that I think, basically I read a paper where the sarcosist or the uh, sarcosistus spheri or the neurona both secrete neurotoxins. So we use the albendazole as a kind of a deal to overcome that. Uh, I'm kind of happy with that. I've seen it work a little bit. The levamisole by itself, of course, is not a treatment for EPM, the, the, the uh, decoquinase. It's actually the treatment for EPM. The levamisole is a, an immune stimulant. Uh, and basically, it uh, promotes well-being. So, again, I, I still don't think there's enough. There's not enough research to really say that. I, I'm not a disbeliever, but I haven't seen enough that I can say. And I sure don't have any effects. Right. Well, and then I'm going to throw in on the treating with levamisole. Um, so treating with like tortrazol and DMSO, it does not test for shows, correct? That's true. Um, and, and that's one thing to to consider with levamisol, just because we we see that in the rehab all the time of, you know, people want to treat with it, but they don't realize that it tests. So levamisole if you is considered a performance enhancing drug. Yes. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, that's always it's on the racetrack. That's anywhere. Whereas you're not using it as performance enhancing. They don't care. Right. Because if it shows up, they'll they'll call you on it. But, but I thought I would throw that out That's there as, as we talk about like, you know, treating when with you inject and, and that type of thing. Like if you do go to say a quarter horse show or something like that, it will trip a drug test. So yes, it will. <laughs> that's something to kind of remember. Um, okay. So I'm going to hand this one to you and I'm going to let you read that one because that one's out of my wheelhouse here. Oh, Neospora Husei. My horse was exhibiting neurological symptoms, but it was negative for sarcoidosis. Positive for neosporohusia. Okay, so sarcos uh, protozoan organisms. Uh, basically, there are several that cause EPM. Okay, e EPMs: equine protozoal myeloencephalitis, which, by that terminology, is saying that it's in the nervous system, right? Okay. So when we say there's two forms of EPM, we're really I I'm simplifying things to the point. Sarcosis is a muscular protozoan. It is not EPM. Okay, and that needs to be out there. Everybody needs to know that. But for ease, it has the same symptoms. It has the same treatment. A lot of times, everybody goes, you've got the muscular form of EPM. Okay, but that's a complete simplification. Okay, it's not even an oversimplification. Okay, 
Sarcocystis neurona and Neospora husei are two of the main causes of uh, actual EPM. Okay. Now she's asking me to talk about Neospora husei. It's just another protozoan, and it happens to cause a certain percentage of the cases. So when you're in, when you're negative for Sarcocystis neurona, and you come up positive for Neospora husei, you still have equine protozoal myeloencephalitis. That won't change your treatment whatsoever. You're going to treat it the same way. There's actually been a case that I've read about where it was another bug entirely. You've heard the kissing, the kissing bugs, uh -huh. and they they would bite you and they and, and cause a disease. Right. Is that a trip trypanosoma? I can't remember if that's a trypanosoma or not. But it, it they actually had a case in Texas where a horse had EPM, and it was a case of that. Interesting. So there's other things that get in. So basically, you're almost looking at a uh, inflammation of the nervous system due to a, a bug. So EPM can be lumped under quite a large number of any kind of bug that's infesting the neurologic system. Well, and also too, I mean, to kind of bring in like your tick-borne, they can mimic what we call symptoms of of EPM. Correct. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and, the, and 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 they're bad to come and go and come and go, and they cause lasting damage if they're left there for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you've got an EPM horse and you're treating that horse and you treat him one month and you're not seeing any progression, at that point, you need to do some testing and see if you can figure out. At that point, I'm a huge believer, let's do some blood tests right, and see what we can find and if we need to go a different direction. Um, we had several questions on here about um, treating pregnant mares, like the the how safe it is to treat a pregnant mare. Can that be passed? Um, would you consider breeding a mare that has had EPM? Is there any danger for that to be passed onto the foal? I don't and know if I answered that pyroplasmosis question earlier either. Uh, pyro generally, just like uh, equine infectious anemia, usually doesn't cross the, the placental barrier. So the foal normally doesn't catch that. Same with EPM. Okay. Normally, so. normally the foals don't catch it. Uh, and as far as treating pregnant mares, that's a tough question. If the mare gets really, really down and we're trying to save her, we, we have no choice. But there are no, no, I repeat, zero drugs on the market or compounded that have proven safety as far as treating pregnant mares. So it's a crapshoot. So if they're pregnant and they've got it and it's just a little bit, I generally try to wait until they have the baby. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I generally try to wait until they quit nursing. Um, another question, um, talking about the protozoans that are involved with the different strains of EPM, what causes them, where do they live, you know, how do we fight them in our own environments, is there any type of environments that these protozoa won't tolerate, um, will they stay viable in hay in the winter or does freezing temperatures or the heat of the sun kill the protozoa? So I don't know that we have revisited in this, in this live i don't know that we revisited your hay theory yeah yeah there's a lot of theories there okay so <laughs> protozoans uh, oh followed to, to add to that would steaming your hay kill a protozoan like if you that, bought a hay that steamer. would be really cool I, I would love to do a study on that i don't know it hasn't been proven but it's been a personal theory of mine for a while that that may be a really good thing to do but still yet if you do that what's to keep them from having a fecal contamination from out in the pasture or 
or something, you know. So not just the hay. I think most of our infections come from the hay, but I think, you know, even if we steam the hay, I mean, but if we're feeding them in a, in a, and that's all they're getting, I think steaming the hay would certainly go a long way towards doing it, really, to tell you the truth. Okay, so now going back to the crux of that question is where do they come from? Okay, so the protozoans, they don't have a clear life cycle. Okay, what they supposed at first uh, with the EPM, actual Sarcocystis neurona, was that the possum was a member of the life cycle. And what they supposed was, and I'm because I'm, they were reaching pretty far out here, okay, was that the cowbirds, the black, brown and black cowbirds, carried the protozoan. Then some of them would die. The possum would eat the cowbird. And then the possum would crap in the hay field. Now, they were saying he'd crap on the hay in your barn. I don't buy that because you knock that stuff off of there. And I'm not saying that that's got a huge deal. I think the bigger infection process is, them crapping in the hay field and it's getting bailed in the hay, right? So what you and I always talked about was, man, if I was a farmer uh, and I made hay for horses, why wouldn't I pick my rake up just a little bit and leave some of that stuff on the ground? Now, I know it's really wasteful sounding, but it sure sounds interesting. It's, it's all interesting to me. Um, you go back to where do they come from? Uh, I had a, st a stable with 85 and they only stayed in the stalls. They didn't go out to pasture at all. And they got fed hay. And for and there were Morgans and Saddlebreds. And for years there, I never had an EPM case. And I was fascinated. Why don't I have EPM here? And then she fired her hay company and started buying hay from another company. And within a month, I had six cases. So I know for a fact that it's coming in the hay, right? Okay. okay so, and it's just one of the many cases that that's happened. Okay, so there's fecal contamination in the hay or the feed or the water. And then the horses are ingesting that. And they're ingest what they're ingesting is a spore cyst or an egg, which hatches within their gut and then gets into the blood system. And that's when it travels throughout the body and lodges either in a neurologic system or in the case of the frayer eye, it lodges in the muscle. The really interesting thing is I said before we were treating 85% of the cases we're seeing now are uh, muscular cases. Okay, what's interesting about that is uh, fair eye is passed by every living creature that eats meat and takes a crap in your hay field. Uh -huh. Cats, dogs, coyotes, foxes, you name it, owls, whatever. Okay, so that's why we're seeing such a huge deal of that. And you know that some farmers that when a horse dies or whatever, they just haul him out to the corner and then they let everything do right. its deal. And so I think that's why we're seeing the boundaries of this disease spread throughout the United States, where I really felt like it started in central United States and we're seeing it expand more and more every year. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what I believe, okay? Now the possum deal, so when I didn't understand that we had a muscular form, I was like, there's not enough possums in the world to see as many EPM horses as we're seeing. Right. Right. Okay, now an interesting, uh, sidetrack take off in Malaysia people have sarcocystis fairi mm -hmm. they eat raw horse and they get general malaise and they don't feel very good and they have cystic structures in their muscles and it's very painful and the doctors any doctor that's practiced in Malaysia will be like oh yeah I see that all the time and I think that really throws people for a loop so yeah it, it, I've actually read several papers on that Told me that. Don't eat possum poop. 
<laughs> the takeaway of the soul bill. Yeah, don't awesome. do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I know it's tempting, but doggone it, leave it alone. Um, let's jump over to kind of the rehabilitation side of things where I, I can weigh in a little bit on this, but like, um, we've, we've had multiple, multiple questions. You know, what, what do you do to rehabilitate the damage that's done? And a lot of people are talking about how spooky their horses are. Um, eyesight issues, issues at the base of the ears. Um, several people have talked about, um, the tongue of the horse as well. And, um, yeah, like your, your head tilting, your shaking, that type of thing. Yeah. This goes to the deal we were talking about where most of those protozoan infections are producing a neurotoxin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, that's what I was talking about. Treatment of the albendazole. Uh, I feel like most, and I read a paper, of course, and then and I trans translated to my way of thinking, uh, because it doesn't matter if these horses have what I deem to be the muscular variety or the neurologic variety, you get a lot of head shy horses. You get a lot of horses that seem to see things that aren't there, spooky horses. The tongue, interestingly enough, is considered by everybody uh, in the veterinary industry to be the biggest harbinger of any sarcosis ferri infestation. You do a, a like a biopsy on the tongue, you will find more ferri prozone in that tongue than any other muscle in the body. Is it because it's one of the softest muscles? I don't know. I haven't figured that one out, but that's where, I mean, I mean, any pathologist you talk to will tell you that. So then that leads into a lot of like, you know, you see these horses that choke or things like that. And it's because that tongue is swollen to a degree. Well, yeah, it's inflamed. Okay. So therefore you, you, you get, you know, and of course with the neurologic version, of course, you're going to have, depending on where that bug is in that spinal cord, you're going to get symptoms according to that. So yeah, going, going back to the rehab, um, some of the things that we see in the rehab side of things, I feel like are that people return these horses to performance so quickly. And, you know, a lot of times we'll see when you start treating one that after a couple of weeks, they really perk up and yeah, it looks like you've had your old horse back. And so what I find is these people go and they enter something and instead of doing the slow work it takes to rebuild that muscle, they enter the barrel race and they go somewhere and they run. And then their horse just almost immediately relapses from the stress of the three-day event that you've entered. And then you're right back to square one at the vet. And so kind of when talking about the rehab process that we go through, it's a lot of really, really slow work. And when I talk slow work, I'm talking, we do everything at a walk and a trot. We do it from the ground. We're using ground poles we're using inclines we're backing these horses we're doing stretches we're basically trying to wake that body up and restore that movement and restore that nerve connection to the brain that was lost whenever that start the atrophy started um so i, I know that's those are some of the things that we use a lot of the you know kinesiology tape we use balance pads we, we kind of have a whole tool chest full of things that we just try um for instance today i stood for 10 minutes with a rope around a horse's leg, trying to retrain that sensation to actually pick the foot up without jumping sideways or trying to kick somebody. Um, but um, what do you have to weigh in on the rehab process? It's without a doubt a critical part of the situation. What I always say, and I mean, all you folks out there that I work for, 
I always tell them is, anytime you have EPM in a horse, you're gonna, it's going to leave you a present. And by leave you a present, I mean you're going to come back in three weeks or 30 days, and I'm going to go over that horse, and I'm going to find a sore stifle. I'm going to find a sore hock. I'm going to find some chiropractic issue. I'm going to find something. Okay, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, and do we go back too soon? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. If we had our druthers and we had a time where we could take 30 days and rebuild this horse, it would be absolutely necessary. But so many times we're aiming for an event or something and we, we treat them and they go right back. And maybe they don't come right back, you know, and get to where we need to be. People need to realize that rehab's a part of the situation. This is a jigsaw puzzle and we're putting together this puzzle one piece at a time. And, you know, we're going to find ulcers. We're going to find tick fever. We're going to find uh, a stifle sore, you know, and these are all left over. Their presence left over from this evil condition. Um, another question that was asked uh, was like soft tissue. You know, can you have cystic and things like that that appear, but then they seem like they disappear, like ghost conditions was one of the things that was mentioned on here. I love all these terms. <laughs> Side you're going to have a glossary for Sidewinder syndrome. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, when you have EDM and you come into my clinic and you're at, you'll ask me, I guarantee you, you'll say, hey, this horse is lame in the right rear. And I'll go, this horse has got EPM. And they look at me and they're like, yes, but he's limping in the right rear. Yes, because that's part of this deal. Okay. So even if it's not part of this deal, we have to clear the EPM out of the way before we can properly diagnose this horse with anything else. Because it's completely discombobulating the whole system. It would be like looking at a bar graph. And your information on your bar graph goes up and down like this. And some little kid come in there and scribbled all over your bar graph. You can't see where the bar graph goes because of all the scribbles. And if we take that condition away that causes the scribbles, the bar graph is completely visible. And then we can actually diagnose whatever problem you got underneath that. Um some areas that you see inflammation you know we we talk about the spinal cord a lot but um as far as your head your ears um what what are some of the other signs that you see that maybe don't quite fit in the box of what what you consider normal oh my gosh i've seen every kind of inflammation every kind of pain with a root and epm it's it's just what you see or what we find. I even had a horse one time that colicked over and over, and I finally figured out that it was EPM that was causing that. And once we treated the EPM, the colics went away. Uh, That's interesting. Then I surmised that possibly I had a neurologic form, and maybe the bug was in the main nerve, nerve branch for intestinal movement or something. And, and at this point, you're just you're guessing. You're, you know, you're doing your best educated guess of what you're doing to fix this. Sometimes uh, it's almost like we're practicing intuitive medicine. We're just making a jump based on facts that we've gathered up on our history, right? Right. So what's your suggestion for people that, you know, trying to find a vet, they, they know something's not right with their horse because, again, we, we've we all know our horses and I mean, we know the signs of like, okay, you know, like we'll argue with you until the end of time. No, my horse is not spooky and I'm telling you he's not spooky. But what what is your suggestion for people to try to find a vet that, that can help or that is capable of helping? 
or how, how do you decide what vets are a, a, an expert in the field? Okay. That's tough. And, and, and uh, I mean, where I've got to go there, I, I'll never talk bad about anybody else in my profession. Uh, I mean, I've done stupid things and, and, and failed people myself. There's probably some people on here watching right now going, I can't believe y'all are listening to this idiot. <laughs> we'll see a comment come up here in just a minute. <laughs> so, uh, I, I can't. All I can tell you is find a veterinarian that will listen to you and that will try. And if, if, you, if you listen or he or she or they'll listen to you and they'll try to help you, then that, that's the one you got to go with. I mean, if you if you talk to uh, going to a veterinarian and they're not listening to you and you don't feel good with them, then then you're not getting what you need out of them. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's it, it always takes somebody with a, an ear to listen to you and then to be willing to try something to fix and that's all I can tell you. Um, another question on here, the difference in PSSM horses, do you see misdiagnosis of EPM that ends up being PSSM? Not necessarily. And I don't okay. believe so. I mean, to me, I mean, PSSM might be there, but I think the EPM has a pretty symptomatic diagnosis. And, and uh, I feel like so does PSSM. Yeah. I, I've ridden both. Right. Um, and, and they're both different. Uh, I think it's hard. I think what happens is you treat for the EPM and then you're looking for that to go away and then you might miss the PSSM with all the other stuff going on. But I don't think that it's a misdiagnosis. I think it's more a case of I've got EPM and PSSM. Right. Uh, but I don't think that there's ever a horse that had PSSM and I said, oh, he's got EPM. I just don't think that's right. Uh, I, I would tend to, I, I feel like it fits a pretty, pretty yeah. certain yeah. Um, set of symptoms as well. Um, there were several on here, so we covered the locking stifles. Um, let's see. Um, there's been several questions on deworming. Um, do you? Is there any any contraindicated dewormers? Um, yeah. Do you do you wait and deworm after they're off treatment? What What is your thought process on deworming? No, uh, if I was not going to use one, it'd probably be ivermectin. Uh, and, and that's just got a feeling because ivermectin works on a neurologic uh, basis on a worm. So you got to wonder, does it have any, you know, it's safe. But again, here we are. Every medication has a reaction, right? So if I was going to avoid worming with one, it'd probably be ivermectin while, he was, while I was treating actively. Otherwise, I don't really have a problem warming. Uh, uh, you know, and when I say ivermectin, I'm talking ivermectin or moxidectin or that. Those are they're good warmers, and I don't have anything against them. I just, when I'm treating them, I might avoid them just because I feel like maybe something might happen, right? Okay. I feel like if I had a chance at having a reaction, it might have more shot happening if I did that. Uh, but like I told you a minute ago, I've been using albendazole and one of them on a daily basis. And don't have any problem with that at all. Okay. Um, is there any correlation between EPM and selenium deficiency? No. Two different two different entities completely, as far as I can tell. Uh, selenium deficiency. Uh, you'll get some muscle soreness with selenium deficiency, but it's it's usually fairly easy to treat it. Uh, I think 
that question is rooted in, in the fact is because I have muscle soreness when I have EPM. But when I do my exam on those EPM horses, I'm actually not looking at all the muscles. I'm actually following acupuncture meridians. And the soreness that I see is associated with those acupuncture meridians. Um, let's see. Lots of questions about supplements. Um, Eclipse MBP or MBP Eclipse PM was one that came up. Um, and I just comment. <laughs> Any couches for sale? Sure, I got one here. Go ahead, come on over. <laughs> um, but yeah, several questions on supplements. You know, what what can you do as far as supplementation? Do supplements help with anything? Um, do you have any supplements that you suggest? I'm constantly experimenting with supplementation. Uh, most veterinarians go from the point of view that supplements, you're, you might as well pee on their foot uh, and you're not doing any good. I disagree. Uh, I think some supplements are actually very good. And I've, I've had some, I've had some pretty uh, good experiences with some supplements. Uh, I think some of them are worthless. Uh, and, and what I tell most of my clients is you have to find the one that works for you. Uh, as far as EPM, Really, the only supplement that I use in those instances that I currently recommend, uh, vitamin E, of course. And I, I always tell everybody to buy the natural vitamin E, not the synthetic vitamin E. Um, <laughs> that's a good one, too. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, and then uh, weight left field. So basically, vitamin E uh, is one. And then the other one, of course, is probiotics. Uh, and I, I, I use a lot for recovery in the recovery mode. I use a lot of the uh, Carbo Combo as a probiotic to help them recover faster. I feel like I get a lot out of that. Actually, I think I picked that one up off of you. Um, yeah, I've used it as well. Um, let's maybe look at that one. Um, string Halt. You know, String Halt, uh, Kayla got upset about that other it's a horse discussion. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, okay. String halt is an oddball condition. Uh, I wouldn't think that you would develop it from having EPM. Um, they don't really know exactly what causes string halt. So it, it's kind of hard to say why it developed, you know, but I've never seen a case develop from a case of EPM. String halt. Uh, is known to come on out of the blue and then to disappear out of the blue sometimes. And then other times it stays. Uh, there's a lot of supposition as to why it happens and what what uh, goes on with it. But no, I've never seen EPM cause it. Um, there was another one on stifles as well. Um, mm -hmm. Follow up. Um, Kissing spine. There, we. There's actually been a couple questions on it as well. Um, your take on kissing spine, because it does seem like that's something that we've seen a lot more of in the past few years. I've got her on EP uh, Facebook. That young lady right there. We probably have a lot of these people on Facebook. Uh, I bet I do. 
all the funny memes. You're talking about the kissing spy. Okay. Uh, Madison kissing spy. Uh, I hate it. I hate it almost as bad as I hate EPM. Uh, so it came out two years ago at the AAP meeting. Uh, a veterinarian actually put on a talk that said that uh, you're not doing a full pre-purchase unless you take a full set of pictures of the spine. Uh, okay, so my take on that is uh, kissing spine is one of those catch-all diseases in the back. Is it a problem? Hell yeah, it's a big problem. Uh, but I think a lot of times we just say kissing spine. Okay, so if we took x-rays of the spine and two of the vertebral processes are touching and we just automatically said, well, that's kissing spine, well, we're not normally correct. I've actually done uh, x-rays on horses that had horrible degeneration of the spinous processes, looked terrible, they were all touching, and that horse had no symptoms whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then I've had other ones that you couldn't hardly see any of them touching, and yet I had a very, very sore back. You see the same in people. I yeah. mean, you have people that go in for some routine x-ray for nothing related to the back, and then they see all the degeneration that's there, yeah. and they've never even had a trouble with their back. But, but again, it's, it's, it's nebulous. It's all over the place. However, uh, my biggest relief, okay, I guess my number one treatment that I've done on spine deal uh, or kissing spine was, uh, believe it or not, uh, injected Renovo into the trigger points. And I had uh, a horse, I've had one horse just spontaneously go back to running and just do wonderfully. I've got two or three out there that I'm waiting on results to see how it worked. Uh, and interim, on the interim, I'm managing that. I do a lot of trigger point injections using different things. And I use the uh, shockwave mm -hmm. quite a bit. And, and it basically between those two of them, and I'll use a little bit of muscle relaxers as well. And between those things, I, I usually keep them going and manage them and I continue. Now, if, if I can't manage them, I usually recommend them to go in and have the ligament cut between the, the spinous processes that are touching. Do you prefer that versus the shaving? Well, it's a lot cheaper. Right. Uh, and it, it works quite well. Uh, you're looking at spending four to 5000 to go in and, and cut the bone out. Mm -hmm. As opposed to doing it standing for 800 or so. Right. And I get, I think I, I feel like the ones I've had done either way, I'm pretty happy that they were equally successful. Well, and like one of the things I'm going to throw in there just from the rehab standpoint is a lot of times we see a correlation between weak hind end muscle and weak core on these horses that, that are presenting with kissing spine symptoms. And I've talked to a few people that have had surgical procedures that they considered unsuccessful and when you look at the horse the horse is not fit they're they're trying to compete on a horse that's not fit and you know a lot of our english people that we talk to um they have so much more core strength in their horses and not to say that they don't have kissing spines but you know that's one of the things that they tend to point out is the fitness of the horse makes it more manageable it may not make it go away but it certainly makes it more manageable yeah, strengthening the core has, I, I, I preach that a lot of times when we're doing this. Let's get under there and work that, you know, work on that, see if we can get back, arch up, let's do anything we can to strengthen the core. agree with you 100%. The rehab deal is, is essential on that. Right. I don't I don't push that enough. I, I think a lot of times things like that 
slipped by. I'm so so focused on medically treating this that I might not say, hey, we need to go have rehab. And I think that that's a, a very good point. Yeah. And, and I mean, again, you see that in the people side too. You know, the first thing that they tell you when you start to exhibit back pain is, you know, typically they, they tell you you need to probably lose some weight and then go to physical therapy. Um, you know, that's kind of the, seems to be the progression of how the human side works. But then on the horse side, sometimes the fitness gets overlooked. Everybody's always telling me to lose weight. <laughs> Not work. Well, you know, but you're happy. I just don't ride my poor horse. <laughs> Terry Monroe, I don't think that that you're, you're asking me if he's poly, got polyneuritis just because he has that uh, lameness in the right rear after EPM treatment last year. Uh, I really doubt that. I, I seriously doubt that. Uh, I don't know what that would, would be, but uh, it sounds like you've explored it pretty, pretty well. I, I, I hate it. I, I don't know if I can help you with that, one, but I seriously doubt that it's a polyneuritis. Um. And let's see, I know we've had some questions on there of, of what you choose to treat with and why. That's a, that's a tough question, guys. I mean, you're in a, we're in a time when the government's all up in our stuff here. Uh, basically, there are three drugs that are commercially available that the government wants you to use. Uh, they don't welcome any drugs that aren't FDA approved, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I have better luck with other drugs, but uh, I probably, I'm not going to talk about them on here because I don't want to, I would just say that I don't want to incriminate myself. <laughs> there but, we go. Uh, but basically, yeah, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you which one's on here. You're, you're all welcome to call me anytime I'll talk to you privately about that, but uh, I'm not going to talk about that on here. Um, there's another good question. Are, are there studies going on, active studies? Yeah. Because uh, okay. you submitted muscle biopsies. When was that? That was UC Davis, and that was a couple of years ago. And then okay. they gave a talk at uh, San Francisco at the AAP about that based on what we found there. Uh, and you're asking, are there any studies? I think what I'm excited about is, yes, I mean, I have gone to, uh, uh, and Tara, I see Tara's asking this question again. Tara, uh, honestly, I think you probably have some kind of mechanical issue there that we're not finding, uh, not so much an EPM related issue. Uh, but and, and to answer your question, are there current studies? Yes. I mean, the last few years, uh, hang on, the cat's got on the table. <laughs> the last few years, I've been really excited at the EP meeting because there's a lot of discussion about it now. Okay. Whereas before, never get anybody really interested but the last few years that I've gone uh, I mean some of the the more legendary members you know of the AAP are talking you know like hey this is interesting we're doing this there was a lady from Colorado last year at Denver uh, who had done a lot of really interesting work on it so I feel like we're making progress now so yeah didn't I see one just back here that well um no uh Leaky gut. Yes. Yes. Leaky gut does increase the chance of horse contact and EPM. Absolutely 100%. I agree with that. Yeah. And uh, it's leaky gut. We have not found a quality treatment for that. So, yeah, okay. that's a terrible thing. I mean, the stride stuff, 
that's helpful, but it seems to be helpful while you're on it. But after you get off of it, it doesn't seem to, to fix it where it's not. Right. And uh, I think I've talked about this to some people in the clinic before. I was at a holistic uh, medicine seminar one time, and a doctor there threw out the deal that possibly uh, maybe Roundup uh, had some something to do with that. Mm -hmm. You can't say that. I mean, don't repeat me or anything like that, but it, it was a pretty interesting talk. Right. But what, what the thing was is, uh, is the stuff's everywhere. So, I mean, you can't throw, throw anything at it. It's interesting. Yeah. But leaky gut's a huge problem. Uh, here's one on Cushing's, if you want to tackle that one. Pre-Cushing's. The vet diagnosed the mare as pre-Cushing's. However, all blood work is in normal ranges. Insulin and ACTH is similar in numbers. Based his diagnosis on that and clinical visit, seeing her in person. She gets lame in right front only every year around June, July, usually for several weeks. I think you'd have some kind of foot problem there, honestly, to tell you the truth. I'm not sure that the Cushing's, the pre-Cushing's, or whatever that is, it has anything to do with that lameness. questions on meds if you've got questions on meds you can always call um that'd be the best way to go yes um are there any types of therapy you recommend during or after anything yeah anything you do to increase blood flow anything you do to increase uh a healthy body uh, i mean my goodness yeah anything yeah decreasing inflammation increasing circulation so um, just to kind of add on to that uh, question, there are some, there are different types of PEMF. So you have your low frequency PEMF therapy, which is usually your blankets, your neck pieces, your leg wraps and things like that, that um, usually those therapies stay around 20 gauss at full or, or less than that, depending upon the brand, where your machines are going to typically be a higher intensity PEMF. So some of the higher intensity, some of those companies do not recommend using that equipment while the horse is in treatment, but each company should be able to tell you what their protocol is and whether it's contraindicated or whether they recommend it. So I would always suggest just checking with the company on like your therapy standpoint on that. Jan Bauman, uh, treating for anaplasmosis after you're treated, there's no reason that horse shouldn't return full, full abilities. Um, let's see. Anaplasmosis is similar to pyroplasmosis. It's a red blood cell parasite. Once you treat it, uh, that horse should be able to return to activity with no problem. Um, here's, here's one. I have a question. I have a five-month-old filly that's very healthy. She chipped her toe on her left front foot and now traveling like she's clubby. I've had her trimmed and had the heel taken down some to compensate. This is an expensive race filly, so I'm wondering if I need to have her checked to make sure there is not anything else I need to do for her. She's traveling sore still. Absolutely. Hi, Leah. How are you doing? Uh, I would take some x-rays that foot to rule out anything with the coffin bone, huh? Uh, going against that, I, I, you know, you, you might want to get her some shoes on the front just to maybe take the pressure off of it and give it time to heal. Because I'd either say she's probably got a bruise on that foot or she's Done something to the coffin bone. Five month old. Mm -hmm. So would they so, cast that or 
I read that wrong. I thought it was a little older than that. <laughs> Sorry. I'm probably Sorry, not, Liz. Probably not showing the fight. I told you there's people on there saying, what an idiot. <laughs> uh, no, I'd still probably take an extra half just to look. And uh, do something, you know, you if you don't put a shoe on it, you can still still put a boot on or something like that. If you bruise it. But it could be higher up as well. Um. Specific stretches or exercises recommended. Um, we actually have a video playlist of the stretches and the exercises that we do um, our groundwork in working over the trotting poles and things. So um, if you go to the Superior Therapy page and you scroll to the top, there should be an EPM playlist, which will also have our old videos that we've done in the past as well. Um, so that's an interesting one on leaky gut and an alkaline diet. I don't know that I'm qualified to comment on that. I don't know how leaky gut and alkaline diet go together. Um, uh, uh, there seems to be a lot of theories as to why leaky gut is is there now. I don't really know enough about it that I'm I'm qualified to comment on that. And I, well, I'd love to help you. I'm sure just I don't. I think I'd just be spreading crap out there. I don't think <laughs> I don't think you'd want to take anything I said there. Um, let's see. So back to do you have an opinion about soy and feed related to EPM? No, I don't think they can. I don't I don't think that at all. Do you have a preference in liquid vitamin E versus powdered? No, as long as it's the natural form. Uh, the natural form if it's liquid or if it's powder, either one, the natural form is the one to take. About 5,000 international units is the way to go per day. Um, okay, there's been several questions on here too that's scrolling through about chiropractic and causing EPM flare-ups or a, a correlation between chiropractic and EPM. Okay, so that's an interesting deal. I, I mean, that's a pretty, uh, pretty, stressful chiropractic adjustment to cause a flare of EPM. Uh, I kind of almost wonder, you know, in, in that instance, if he got neurologic after you did a chiropractic adjustment, would you be wondering more about the spinal alignment? Would you have uh, some kind of spinal issue? Because you can sure with a chiropractic adjustment done blindly, if a horse has a bad vertebrae and you, you pinch a nerve or something like that, they could get a little bit neurologic and it wouldn't be EPM at all. I would be more looking that way than I would be uh, saying that I had a chiropractic adjustment and it caused EPM to flare up. I don't, uh, and one other thing, you know, I would do chiropractic in my, in my exams to remove all the things that are in my way. When I'm looking for a lameness and I got it there and, and there's a lot of chiropractic issues, I'll use a chiropractic horse to get get it out there where I can see the lameness. And if uh, if you uh, had a horse that had EPM possibly and you chiropracted him and you took away all his compensatory mechanisms, then that could happen. I don't think you caused a flare up. I think you probably just put it out there where you could see it. So okay. that'd be one of the two things. That makes sense. Um, on phone consultations, um, message us and, sure. and be happy to. Yeah, uh, message message the page. I'll make sure that you get his number. You have his contact, and um, you can just give him a call. And no, Cairo does not make EPM. I did 
disagree entirely. Do you feel like it's a good use of money spent? Do you feel like they hold the adjustments if they're weak? When I have a horse that has EPM, I won't chiropract them until I've treated them. Okay. The reason being is I feel like they come back sore uh, and, and you wasted your money on the chiropractic deal. So unless you've got somebody, and this happens, I laugh, but it happens. After all of our talk about rehab and all this, Doc, I've got a gosh darn barrel race next week and he's got to go and <laughs> start the treatment. And then I'll chiropractic because that's where we're going to go. But with the caveat that don't let this horse kill you, okay? I mean, if he's neurologic, if he's neurologic, we're not going to do that. But if right. it's a muscular form, I feel like we can get away with that. Um, do you feel like chiropractic can help cycle soreness? Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Absolutely. Because, I mean, any any of the joints can be subluxated, shifted, or whichever. And when you're working, we're constantly working with all Um, there's another on reinfected. I think that we've kind of covered that. Um, of course that has swelling in an eye, in the, in the left eye since day one still has not gone away after treatment. Do some of these secondary things, or is that usually something you're stuck with? Swelling in the eyes and stuff like that usually comes and goes. Uh, I don't really, I haven't seen too many of the swelling came in and just stayed. That would be really odd. And I'd wonder, I would have to have that checked over to see if it's something else. Right. Um, I know you touched on Renovo a bit. Um, kind of explain what Renovo is, maybe even compared to like PRP and some of these other. Well, it, it's just another regenerative therapy. It's derived from the, the allantoic fluid in the, in the mares, uh, which the allantoic fluid, of, of course, surrounds the foal in the womb. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, like the rest of these, it's uh, you're using stem cells, stem cells, are cells that that can divide and become any kind of cell. So you know, in in theory, what you're doing is you have a, a cartilage defect or something like that, and you're putting a stem cell or something in there to possibly those stem cells would become cartilage and repair the hole. Uh, I don't think it ever fully becomes that. But by the same token, the stem cells, the interleukins, all the stuff that are included with that uh, decrease inflammation in that joint. Um, there, uh, a lot of the regenerative therapies, I think, have a place. Uh, Renovo currently has uh, become one of my favorites because it is doing some things. It's, it's, it's got some results that I haven't achieved with some of these other products uh, consistently. I've used it in navicular verses. I've used it in coffin joints. I've used it in uh, knees. I've used it in hocks. Um, and I've consistently got good results with it. Uh, decreasing inflammation, uh, uh, rehabbing uh, injuries, uh, you name it. So uh, I'm very happy with Renovo. That, that's a great product. Um, I have some arteries right in the way. <laughs> I know, all right. Uh, do you think there's a die-off stage to expect during treatment? I feel like that's... I do feel like that some, some of the ones that we see, 
do get grumpy. They do sometimes almost get more sore before they start to improve. Um, I don't know if that's the direction that they're headed with that question. But I think you do get a stage. Uh, you'll get an improvement. A lot of times when I start a treatment, I'll see a horse kind of go downhill for the first seven days or so. But by the 10th to 12th day, I see him kind of bounce back and come on. Now you're talking about here, this uh, Carly Wilcox is talking about a horse that's down and sitting sternal. Now when you're treating a horse that's got it that bad, Carly, uh, my heart goes out to you. Yeah, discouragement is, uh, is the word of the day. Uh, I get discouraged way more than I, than I don't. So when you're treating there, you might want to use some anti-inflammatories at the same time to kind of help them. Uh, you might use some IV DMSO, uh, try to try to help him along. Anything to decrease inflammation because when you're having that die-off thing you're talking about, uh, basically you get a general bad feeling. And, and uh, the, if if they were already bad enough that they were getting down, uh, then then you're 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 fighting an uphill battle. It, it, uh, all the EPM that we're talking about are either minor cases or cases the horse is putting up with where they're still usable. Get into talking about horses that are down and have EPM and they've gotten so far as to actually become sternal. Uh, man, it's it's really hard to get a horse up and get him going again. Now, is it impossible? Absolutely not. It's not impossible. We've got a common client, Summer and I do. Uh, this lady will not give up on her horse. Uh, he's been with a head tilt completely around, couldn't hardly get around, fell on me while I was treating him. And she's never given up and, and he looks fantastic. Um, is he ever going to be normal? I don't know, but he's he's going to be around. He's not going anywhere, uh, and he's quit falling on people. That's a good plus. Right. But uh, uh, as opposed to that, I've also treated horses that were down that came back and did wonderfully. Um, here's another question on die-off. No, that's really not common for a horse to have a second die-off. That's not common at all. If you have a horse that goes back, second month of treatment, uh, I'd be looking for a concurrent infection or something. I'd be doing some blood work. You've got something else going on. Um, and, you know, kind of back to the, the being spooky, is there a remedy for that? I can tell, I can tell with my personal horse that, that had it so bad as a three-year-old, you know, she, she was a horse that, that I'll be honest, like I could carry flags do all of the things and she she gets to um you know like she always made it back to competition i've i've made several great runs on her but one thing i've noticed is i've had to change how i warm her up because she will not tolerate being in a warm-up pen with a huge group of horses and it's almost just kind of like it scrambles like there there's too much action going on so she's a very focused but I go, have to kind of go find my quiet corner. And, you know, like, is she a horse I think I could stand up and crack a bull whip on like we did when she was two years old? Probably not. But she's still competing. You're going to have horses that have a residual spookiness. I would recommend for sure getting those chiropractic and getting their pole checked because sometimes that's a big problem. Uh, if it's not that, though, and it's a residual spookiness and we just didn't get it, we got to make sure, of course, that we got the EPM under control and it's gone and we're not seeing some more of that. Uh, 
uh, because you'll have a recurrence. Uh, and then the third thing is if there's some spookiness left, well, then we have to uh, introduce them to some liquid cowboy or something, you know, work on them from that way. Um, please ask about lung issues. That's a huge subject right there. <laughs> that, that's kind uh, of its own I will say something interesting on, on lung issues, and this may be interesting to, to you. Uh, Bo Ringer Engelheim just released a brand new steroidal uh, inhaler. It's going to be about 400 bucks, but it's for treating asthma, COPD in horses. And it's a different steroid than we've ever used before. Interesting. And it's very effective. Uh, I have yet to use it yet, but I just got word today that it was released. I'd heard about it, but you got word today that it's released and it's available. So it might be something interesting. There's a lot of lung issues. Uh, you're welcome to call me and I'll talk to you about them. I, I mean, <laughs> you might have to get more specific here. Um, that, the gold titer for a, a fully healed horse. You know, we talked about titers. I'm not a huge titer guy. Uh, anything that would be considered negative would be a gold titer. Um, allergies. Well, your body reacts to medications and, and uh, diseases in different ways. And if you had a horse that developed allergies while being treated with those, uh, you know, they might stay, but more than likely you're probably going to deal with those for his lifetime. Now, if his immune system bounces back and they go away, that's great. But if it doesn't, uh, you like you said, you've been you've allergy tested him. Your vet wants to give him Dex, but Dex only lasts for uh, about 12 hours. So that's a fairly short activity rate for a drug to be used for allergies i mean it'll help for a short time but it'll go away um i think i'd be more prone to use in a horse that had epm i'd be more pr prone to use an antihistamine like trihist or something like that because you won't get the immune uh, suppression like you would get with a cortisone um amino acids well the equinity product is touted as being really good i have not seen that it was great, but I had other people tell me they had wonderful responses. It goes back to your supplementation, where some people say you're just might as well pee on their foot. I actually took a big old jug of that equinity and took it myself, and I didn't see any good out of it. That's not, you know, look, well, my, my hair is starting to grow back. <laughs> but but uh, no, I, I, I have some clients that absolutely love equinity. And as for myself, I didn't see it. But but like I said, you you move around and you use different products until you find the one that works for you. Um, oh, I almost scrolled past that one. So um, heaves and allergies. That kind of goes back to you talking about using a antihistamine. I'm not familiar with the histol H product, but uh, sounds like it's an antihistamine. And that's what we talked about. I'd use an antihistamine before I did the EPM. Now, what you got to know, you it, the other lady was talking about how she um, had an allergy test. If you had an allergy test, they also offer allergy shots. Uh, and you can get those shots and you give them to them for about 90 days. And what that does is super uh, hyper react your body to those things. And uh, basically, a lot of times those work to make those uh, allergies go away. I think good luck with those. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on magnesium or baking soda to a very muscular horse? Uh, magnesium, I'm not sure you're going to get much out of that, but the baking soda is not a bad idea. You're, you're providing them with 
a little bit of alkalinity on face muscles. What she's doing, she's trying to combat uh, lactic acidosis or tying up. Uh, if he's too muscular, you know, there's other drugs for that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not against the baking soda. Um, we used to use baking soda, two of them with baking soda and whatnot uh, on the racetrack some, and got pretty good results that way. Um, you could also use lactinase. That's a good drug for that. Uh, um, <clears throat> and lactinase can come in a powdered form that you can do, put in the feed. So uh, there's other things that are available for that, but the baking soda would probably be more helpful than the magnesium. Mm -hmm. Colloidal silver. I don't think we've even brought that up tonight. Yeah, colloidal silver I do like. Silver. I actually make my own. I like it a lot. Uh, I use it. Uh, colloidal silver does uh, things that uh, probably I don't even know. I, I couldn't even tell you. And people say, why would you use that? And it's because I put horses on it and I'm like, wow, I didn't right. see that coming. You know, I, I've had whole stables on colloidal silver and it turned the stable around and I still don't know why. Uh, Colloidal silver is a great product. I, I tout it as a partial preventative for EPM. It's not 100%, but it is uh, effective enough that it's worth giving and keep them on it. You know, uh, it, but it does some things. Uh, I've had horses that I would be injecting, chiropractic, couldn't beat them suckers, couldn't get them to do what I needed them to do, turn around, and I start them on colloidal silver, and all of a sudden I don't have to do anything to them anymore. And I'm like, where did that come from? I don't really know. And I don't know, maybe it's, I just like it because I'm such a sorry veterinarian that it actually takes up where I left off. <laughs> you know? um, okay. Fat locks on the hind legs. It kind of falls back under your residual symptoms and things. Okay, now that sounds like you might have a possible sore stifle there. You might look into the stifle uh, I, well, she may not know who we're talking to. That was Penny Burton Griffin. You might look into the stifles on your horse, Penny. Uh, I would be worried about that horse knuckling over like that. And there could be some other things going on, but I would sure check the stifles to see if they may be sore. That may be one of those presents that we're talking about. Okay, back to, she was the one that asked the kissing spine question earlier. Okay, this is Madison. Since we are down the line, I want to bring up that I'm wondering if my horse is muscular EPM instead of true kissing spine due to the body soreness this horse has. I've mentally bounced back and forth for a while. Since the egg trays are definitive, I went that route, but now I'm questioning. Can we talk about general signs and symptoms of EPM for the newbies? Holy mackerel, Madison. I mean, those signs are so broad. They go, uh, <laughs> I like this one. Who needs hair, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> I wear a hat. <laughs> uh, so Madison, going back to your deal here. Okay, so I almost have to grab a hold of your horse and look at that horse, and I can tell you a difference between the kissing spine and the EPM if I got my hands on it. As far as telling you over this deal, it would be very difficult to do. Uh, if you have EPM, that horse is going to be sore everywhere. If you have kissing spine, generally that horse is just sore somewhere in the middle of the back or or towards the back end, towards the lumbar. Uh, but but the difference is definitely uh, noticeable. And if you can bring your by here and let me look at it, I can probably tell you the difference. Uh, so I guess 
um, that leave I already answered that question. EPM leads to can lead to colic not Absolutely. frequently. Um, and, and treating uh, EPM sometimes will end up with ulcers as a as a problem. So, absolutely. Um, let's see. How much colloidal silver did you do you use in a horse? Um, what do you use? We we make it twenty one parts per million, and I use a sixty cc scoop, and I put that on the feed. I top dress the feed a morning with the feed now if they only feed once we'll do two scoops once a day um dana we we visited the deworming um i probably wouldn't use the ivermectin while i'm treating the horse i wouldn't worry about it after the treatment though you can do it after the treatment i i and i don't have any scientific evidence to back that up dana you could probably do worm with ivermectin and be absolutely fine it just feels to me that it would be the one i wouldn't use um, and Sherry, to answer your question on can they only get EPM from a possum, you can, when you get where you check out the replay, he actually did a whole segment during this on kind of your, your origin and your causes of the protozoa and where they come from. So just kind of revisit this on the replay and that'll kind of keep us from going over the same information twice. I make the colloidal silver for, for horses here at the office. I've got several generators that are making it always cause body soreness yes almost every instance i've ever encountered had whether it was neurologic or a muscular form yes cause muscle soreness and then we also discussed um you, know, you suggest treating how how many times a year it depends on the horse some horses will treat and we never have a recurrence and i have not yet figured out what the difference is except i know <clears throat> that a if a horse's immune system is weak and is unable to fight that condition, they will come back with it. Uh, so therefore, if I get horses that I've had to treat two or three times within, a, say, a year or two-year period, uh, then well, we cut out on our colloidal silver dose. Uh, I'll get to you in a second, Janet, on that. So anyway, so if I have a horse that had, keeps recurring, I end up, I'll uh, either treat them once every six months or I'll treat them once every three months. And, and during those times, I generally just use a half dose. I'll do a half treatment, uh, the full dose for a half, half month. And then your dosage on the colloidal, colloidal silver. silver is a 60 cc scoop. It's 21 million, 21 parts per million. Uh, I make it in gallons and five gallons. And I give them 60 cc's in the morning, top dressing the feed and 60 cc's at night, top dressing the feed. Which makes it last about a uh, gallon last about 32 days. Dental procedures. If you've got EPM, yeah, I, I would probably be reluctant to use uh, sedation as well. I think I'd probably wait to stress them out, do the dentistry later on. Uh, don't do the dentistry while you're treating. Do you ship your colloidal silver? Hey, you better call me on that question. I don't have to think about that. Probably not. Probably not. Colloidal silver is not a prescription product, and it is available. Uh, it's more available than you'd know. You just got to find the right spots. Um, so is there anything else that you want to kind of touch on or cover? 
we've got a little less than 10 minutes. Oh, we've got another question there. Amanda, how long would you give treatment improvement on an extreme case constantly before coming to the conclusion that it's not working? Uh, I've had people that would not quit no matter what, and I've had other people that uh, call it quits pretty rapidly in that situation. If that horse is a danger to you, uh, then I would probably be faster to call it quits. If, if that horse uh, means an awful lot to you and you're not worried about the danger, uh, I would keep going now. You're asking me how long to give it. I don't know what you're using to treat with. If you want to tell me what you're using to treat with, I could probably give you a better idea of how long I'd go. Uh, because if I'm using, that might be a question you might want to call me tomorrow. But uh, if you're using something that I'm not real tickled with as far as the treatment, you might want to switch over and use something else. She asked a question that was missed, Kelly DeWitt. I'm sorry, Kelly. Um, well, uh, can you repost that? Because I just lost everything. Okay. Um, there we go. And if anybody else has got a question that was missed, uh, there, there was a time my screen kind of flipped out. So just retype them real quick right here at the end, and we will try to get them answered. There we go. Let's go back. Now I'm my screen is having to update. So one second. Um, Let's see. Let me get back down to the bottom here. Um, did anybody else have a question? Because we're, we're fixing to kind of wrap up. We've got about 10 minutes left here. Um, and if, if we missed your question, retype it, and we'll make sure it gets answered before we log off. Um, I'm using a homeopathic now that's working. Congratulations. Thank you all for getting on here and listening to us. It's been fun. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping that girl will go ahead and re-ask her question. Yeah. Who uh, was it? Uh, Kelly. Let's see. Can Kelly, we scroll up? Kelly, do we, it's not letting me. I can only scroll up so far because we've had so many questions and I can't get back. I there was like a there was like a small chunk of people that I see their questions and I can't get back to them. Um, <laughs> He's back. <laughs> hey, give me 10, give me 20, come on. <laughs> yeah, Brandy, that would probably be a good idea. Um, back to preventing other horses from getting it. Oh, hey, girl, Samantha, you're going to have, I've had places that had 20 horses and two get it. I've had other places that had three or four horses and only one gets it. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're on the same pasture. You can't prevent the others from getting it. I'd say 90% of the horses, if you're in Oklahoma area or in the central states area, 90% of the horses have it, but they're just not showing the uh, signs. And so basically when they show the signs, it's usually because their immune system was stressed and they just uh, it, it lowered enough to show it. 
Um, Amanda, to answer your question, his phone number, if you will message the Superior Therapy page, I'll make sure you get all of his contact info. Um, there you go. Oh, Kelly DeWitt. There we go. My mare had EPM all was well. About six months later, she was diagnosed with corona and connection. I don't know what you're talking about there, dear. Uh, Carol, hang on a second, Kelly. I'm going to. Kelly, you need to call me tomorrow. My number is 405-650-7686. My email is crosbyvet at att.net. That's crosbyvet at att.net. Uh, if you want to email me, uh, you're better off to text me. I answer better on text. I'm Carol. I mentioned albendazole. It's in the form of valbazin, which is more of a goat warmer. Uh, and and for cattle and that's that's the one i'm using um last one with leah and leah when i figure out which treatment's best for my horse it, it's generally when i'm doing the physical and i'm going over i'm seeing enough of them i kind of move this way and that way to determine and it also has to do with how how easy they are to treat orally and uh, would it be better if i used a powder in the feed and yes, Michelle, I did. Uh, I recommended that several times to talk. You bet. Half dose, but not really a half dose, but a, a, a half of a treatment as a preventative. That's only preventative. I know of actually. I look so serious on here. <laughs> I would just assume not to be able to watch myself 20 seconds ago. You know, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Yeah. Um, Brandy's, would you recommend treating anyway if I would call him lazy and cross firing? Well, I mean, specifically being in practicing good medicine, no, you're not supposed to say that. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know that I could say that, but if you want to call me, we can talk, or you can text me or email me. And somebody said, write that in the phone number. Phone number is 405 and like I said, if you didn't catch that, message the page, and I'll make sure you have his contact information. Well, this is his normal work hours. <laughs> Where was that? I saw I saw that just a second ago. Where's your, oh, here it is. So I feel like we should end this with your normal work hours each week. <laughs> <laughs> They're long and arduous. <laughs> Actually, I work, uh, I, I, I settled uh, clinic hours from 8 to 12. Monday through Saturday, unless I've got a horse sale or something I'm going to. Everybody texts me. I set up my own uh, deals. I don't have appointments. Uh, I do a first come, first serve basis, start at eight every morning. I try to finish up by 12 because I have several big farms that I work for and I go to those in the afternoons. Those of us that frequent call it the beggar's line. You got to get there early to get in, in the line. But I'm getting some vending machines. <laughs> there we go. Um, okay, so um, I think we had a repeat question on the side. I know we covered the Sidewinder syndrome. I'm not sure if this was the same owner or not. No, I don't think it's the same person. That's funny that I had two people say that. I've never even heard of Sidewinder syndrome, but I love that term. And, I, and I'm not uh, being dismissive about your horse's problem. Uh, again, talking about that. It's not hopeless. I don't think anything's ever hopeless. Uh, I think we have to keep trying things until we find 
something that works. Uh, I, I would have to know a lot more history on your horse before I could say it was hopeless. No, I'm not against that. All right. Well, I think that kind of wraps it up. And thank y'all for tuning in. Um, thank y'all. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate you listening. And thank you for always doing these. No, I mean, no, that, great. You're always the first one that's that's there to help us and to try to help spread good information and to help try to teach. And that means a lot because this is one of those things that people get really down and it seems like a hopeless situation. And it's a horrible, um, horrible situation. It's a terrible fight we're in. I hate it. Uh, I hate EPM and I hate kissing spine and, and I wish we didn't have to talk about them. But uh, our job is to always, and, and your job too, is to always keep exploring until we find something that fixes it. And, and I hope we can keep doing it.